I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Football clubs are, they're, they're very, very weird. If you try to pin down someone's support for a football club, it's, it's very difficult to find philosophically what they're actually in love with. For those who sit outside the world of football, it's often hard to comprehend why the emotions attached to the game are so strong. And yet they are. At their best, these emotions can bring entire cities and countries together. At their worst, they spill into the hooliganism that we see depicted in films like Green Street. Not only do people love the game, but they also love the players, or characters, that they cheer on each week. Just look at the popularity of books like Peter Crouch's How to Be a Footballer, which gives readers a behind-the-scenes glimpse into a different world. I wanted to explore what writers can learn from the narrative of football and the depth of emotion and character development that surrounds it. So I spoke to good friend Graham Sibley, who hosts the long-running podcast Sound of Football, which over the last 10 years has put out around 400 hours of football-related content. Chapter 1. When the field is saturated, how do you find your niche? We've all been there. You've come up with an incredible idea, the next big thing, the excitement, the thrill, and then boom, the weight of reality comes crashing down. Someone else has already thought of it. It's tough to be a writer, perhaps now more than ever, because on the one hand, you have the world at your fingertips. Anything you dream up can be made into reality. But on the other, access to data and the democratisation of the arts means that more content is being produced more quickly than ever before. And in a world that's telling a million stories, you have to find a story that stands out. It was a dilemma facing Graham and his friends when they first set out to create the podcast. Content about the world of football isn't exactly lacking. So how did they find a way around this creative sticking point? Well, there, there's always been a lot of football podcasts out there that uh, run with a similar sort of format whereby you start off just by talking about what happened in last weekend's games. Then that will take you about halfway through to the podcast. And then the second half of the podcast will be just talking about the games that will be coming up next weekend. And that is pretty much the model for most podcasts. And I think we knew at the time that because we were doing this in our spare time, we weren't professional, although we've, we've had a lot of practice by, by now. And so we're, we're actually pretty slick at it. We weren't going to compete with with people that were recording it and getting out within an hour or so. So we, it took us a couple of days to get podcasts out then, and by which time we were already behind the other ones. So we thought, well, wouldn't it be better just to talk about being a football fan and, and the environment of football? And I think that has helped us in, in this situation because we, we're more looking at, at things that of how we think we feel about the game and how we think about the game. So this week, for instance, we had a couple of game developers who had put together a board game, a strategic fo uh, football board game. And this is all very much in the sort of modern style of board games that you get, like uh, Settlers of Catan and, and things like that, which are more free form uh, than something like Monopoly or Cluedo, the ones, the, the mm. classic ones that we we know. And it was just it was just really nice just to just to talk to these frankly a couple of geeks like us about 
their love of football and how they've tried to to merge it with something else they love and in this case it's, it's board games and we see that all the way across and, and it's always lovely to just to talk to people about that the one weird thing that i that i have discovered though in this in this break is that the natural sort of handshake amongst fo football fans is to ask how you the other person's team are doing uh, like for instance the, the the two people we had on this week were colin and rachel uh, colin's team is uh, inverness caledonian thistle and rachel's team is dundee united and ordinarily my first instinct would be to say right how, how's the team getting on but like you know, are you having a good season or a bad season uh, what, what's gone well what, what hasn't gone well and it's just that sort of conversational stuff not not really sort of like we're, I'm getting content here. I'm just interested in in how people's football clubs are, but in this situation, it doesn't exist. Everything's on yeah. hold. It, it's really interesting. So, so to be clear, the podcast that you host, you're not making a, a, a real time or just after real time commentary on um, sport as it unfolds or football games as they are unfolding. You're talking about the business of sport or the culture of sport or sport and indeed football as it means something to other people. You're looking at the exactly. wider culture around sport. OK, yeah. and, and I and I think that's a really interesting you know comment to make because it's a very natural question to ask somebody, isn't it, which is you know, who's your team? How are they doing? I mean, you and I have talked about this often and often over, yeah. you know, the couple of decades that we've interacted. Um, that conversation has gone in many, many different directions. Whereas, yeah. you know, right now it's not going anywhere, is it? No, exactly. I mean, even in the summer, you've got that that question to ask because you, you, even though no one's playing, you know that they will play or they have played. So you can always ask, How's the summer going? Are you buying, getting any new players in, or uh, what do you think the next season? And you've got that optimism as there. This isn't like the closed season. This is like I don't know what's happening. I don't know when we're going to start again. I, I honestly don't know what is going to be on the other side of this, and it just leaves you up in the air. And it, and it, it is in many ways. I mean, it, it is worrying, but of course it's worrying. I mean, it's, 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 it's but there are bigger things to worry about now. Football is is the least of that, but mm. it does help you sort of analyze yourself in some ways about about how important it is in your life and and what sort of how much of of a part of you it, it is. On that theme, how is it that something as fundamental to society or parts of society as football? can so quickly go away and i know that you are a season ticket holder a, a non-league club very very close to you um just tell us about that sort of community tell us about how many people typically go to those games you know is it about the football itself as in the quality of it is it just about connecting with other human beings and has that had any impact on you and the local community because it's not there and a quick follow-up question um whilst you process that is what if it weren't there when this is all over? What impact would that have? So just give us a sense as to what your local club is like every other Saturday. Well, uh, I am a season ticket holder to Whiteleaf, and I have been now for about eight or nine years now. And uh, we only just found out before coming into the recording that they have made a decision on what's going to happen with their season and and all the results from this season have been expunged so oh really wow yeah so so the whole the whole season at that level 
Whiteleaf play at the fourth level of non-league football. Uh, just to give listeners who aren't that au fait with, with football, that's um, seven levels below the Premier League. So it's, it's, it's a long, long way, way down. Usually get about 150 people coming there every week and it's the familiar faces plus a few away fans come i'm lucky enough to go down there with with a few friends we, we come together and go and go down there and we all support different clubs so this is one way in which we can all enjoy football together because i i support a different team to you mark and it, it we it's not easy to go to a game where one of us has got a vested interest is it, it, it it's great going going to a game with you where we're there as neutrals, like when we went to Paris and we watched the game in the in the Euros, and, and that's really exciting. You get to go to to some great parts of the world or, or some some great towns, and you get to see to see a good game. But what I get out of non league football is the fact that I, I have an interest in in the way Whiteleaf play. I, I I love it. It's it's not great, but the players there are they're of a level where you know, I, I would never have got to, but there is obviously something about them that meant that they haven't gone further with their game. And that's intriguing because sometimes you do see players getting snapped up by league clubs and uh, and that's all great. It is very homespun. As I say, 150 people on a good day. And I've always joked that you can work out your, your non-league name by taking your dad's first name and your surname. <laughs> Right. Okay. So that gives you an idea of, of the sort of people who go to watch non-league football. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, okay. So the quality isn't isn't that good. I, I don't think we're being disrespectful to anybody by saying that because if we, and obviously you cannot compare, you know, levels. Um, no, but if 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 we're saying so, one hundred and fifty people yeah. normally, and again, we're, this is a podcast for writers looking to learn about narrative and about either character or their craft. So, typically, one hundred and fifty people would leave their homes every other Saturday to yeah. go down to this particular club and watch a game of football with people that they know. Okay, yeah. what dr- what drives them? to that venue is it the love of football in general is it the camaraderie is it the sense of community or is it all of the above all of the above all of the above because although we say you know you're not going to see premier league quality down there you are going to see a decent game of football we've seen some great games down there this season um they don't count for anything now but yeah we have and there is this sort of feeling of that as well is you you are you're just being swept up there with it it's it. I, I suppose it. It's like a performance, really. I mean, if you could, you could be in a a warehouse theatre with no sets or, or or anything, and seeing a couple of actors there. Or you could be at some high end West End production. Um, yeah. If you're caught up in the action, then you're caught up in the action. It doesn't matter where you are. Of course, when you're in a big stadium, you've got the whole thing about being in a massive throng, and and there is that whole sort of the crowd mentality is there as well. And and that adds something. Obviously, that adds something. But you can get that with just a few friends as well. And and and, and that's what, what we have. 
there's something about what you said earlier about when we were in the Euros and we've been to uh, a couple of international tournaments together. There's something fascinating about watching other people care, isn't there? There's a real oh, yeah. narrative about that. When it's not your own team, yeah. it's so much more enjoyable, isn't it? Especially if you don't care who wins or who loses. No, exactly. And when when I was in in Russia, there something actually made me think about that. And it wasn't anything to do with 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 football because uh, I, I I wouldn't say dragged my wife to 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 Russia, but she she was as intrigued to go to Russia as I was, uh, and we went to watch the, the the World Cup. But I, while we were in St Petersburg, I thought, well, I'll I'll give her a treat and I'll take her to the ballet. And and neither of us know anything about ballet. We we have no clue about it. But we thought we're in Russia. Let's go and do something that that Russians enjoy doing. Oops. What, what, what we assume they enjoy doing, and that is going to the ballet. And so uh, we, we we were sat in in reasonably good seats, and there was obviously someone who did know about ballet that was right next to us because she it was like she was at a football game. She, what she was watching was something completely different to what I was watching. I was watching people jumping around on the, on on the stage. She was watching something that had completely captured her, and she was completely carried away by it. And and she could see things coming up, and she was anticipating things, and she was really getting over it, uh, excited by what was going on in front of her, and it, it, I, that that was fascinating. And I, I was I was getting as much entertainment from watching her and her reaction than I was to to, to actually what was actually going on on the stage. Chapter two: When football is gone, what happens to its communities? Graham has shown us how a physical setting, a certain type of entertainment, they aren't enough to compel people to react in the same way. There's far more to passion than what lies on the surface. Clearly a love of football transcends the mere enjoyment of the game. There are strong, unfathomable emotions that underpin a fan's loyalty and support for their team, the thrill they derive from a match won, and the addiction that keeps them coming back for more. So with football matches cancelled in many parts of the world due to coronavirus, what happens to these emotions? Where do they go? Because they aren't just emotions held by individuals. Whole communities are built up around the stories, the history and shared passion for the club. And at the end of all of this, when the pandemic has passed, what if the small clubs like Graham's Whiteleaf don't survive long enough to make it through to the end? When you're at that level of football, it's, it is amazing how clubs survive, but they, they do. And Whiteleaf has been going, I think it was formed just after the war, and and it's always been around this sort of level, and it's always had this sort of level of support. Uh, I think they've had they they made it to to the first round of the FA Cup proper about twenty years ago, and that was that was their biggest game ever. And wow. there are old hands there who still talk about it, still talk about <laughs> the the Chester game. And uh, the che- it was Chester. That's great. I love it was that. it was Chester. Chester. There, there's actually uh, one of the one of the Chester shirts is on the wall there as well. So it is it is. A fabulous thing, but then again, Chester is a club that that, that went to the wall and was reborn. Uh, so so clubs do die and clubs do come back again, but it it is very fraught when it does happen. We, we we've seen in this uh, in, in England this year when uh, Berry, which was one of the, one of the oldest clubs in the country, was completely well, it was terribly uh, handled uh, financially by its former owner. And then a new owner came in who just basically asset stripped it and left the community that had been built around this football club 
well, not built around it, but it, but where the football club existed within within the community, it was part of the community, and then all of a sudden was gone. Uh, we spoke about it quite extensively on the podcast at the time because we we were trying to get an understanding of of what what that actually means for it for a place, and especially a place like like Berry. I mean, Mark, you would know because you you you'd know you'd know the area a lot a lot better. But when Berry was was first established. It was its own town. It existed in its own right, and in many ways, it still does. But in also in a, in a more important sense, it's part of Greater Manchester, and and yeah. the giant clubs of Manchester, Manchester United, and Manchester City, they they dominate everything around in that area. So there isn't the need for people who live in Bury to support Bury, because basically most people who live there probably don't. They probably support Man United or or, or Man City. When disgruntled fans of Manchester United went up and went and set up, you know, their own club or, you know, started to say, you know, we don't want to be part of this community anymore. We're going to set something else up. Yeah. There was an opportunity for those fans to have transferred their support onto clubs like Bury, which is literally just up the road. And that and that didn't happen. Do you think that was a missed opportunity for the football community in that part of uh, the Northwest? No, I, I don't. I think... Because football clubs are they're, they're they're very very weird. If you try to pin down someone's support for a football club, it's it's very difficult difficult to find philosophically what they're actually in love with, because so many things can change. Uh, and it, I've I've always likened it to to the line triggers broom uh, in right. only, only fools and horses. <laughs> Where he says he says to Rodney that he's had the same broom for twenty years, <laughs> only changed the head three times and the handle twice, and it's it's, it's that idea that that, that <laughs> the, the fact that the entire entire thing has been replaced at some point, it's, well, more than once, and and yet you still think it's the same thing. That's that's a really great analogy. So for for writers out there trying to understand this addiction that we have and this loyalty that we have towards an institution that is clearly, you know, if I think about my own um, football allegiances and I think about the amount of managers that my team, Manchester United, have had over the years, you know, my favourite team actually comes from the Ron Atkinson generation which was pre-Alex Ferguson. And yet before that, there was Dave Sexton. Before that, there was a whole host of other people. I didn't know the Matt Busby generation. I certainly knew the Alex Ferguson generation. Yeah. I, you know, There have been so many managers in the last few generations that why do I still have this love for this club? Can you? What is it about us that we are addicted to this? I, I, it, I think it is part of your psyche. It's sort of, uh, there is, there's levels of, cognitive dissonance here i think about about what what you see when you see your football club because you, you, you can slag it off as much as you like but no one else can so it, it is it is like a member of your family almost it is something that isn't a physical thing it is something about about the club that doesn't actually exist in in the physical world it's, it's metaphysical and yeah it's it is you, and you can't explain it you can't you can't sit there and say oh 
yes, football does this because it triggers this part of your brain. Yes, of course, there's probably dopamine and things like that 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 is triggered every time a goal goes in, and and yes, that's probably part of the the addiction for it. But that's not the level of of interest that I have in it when I'm going down to to Whiteleaf. I I wouldn't say that. Oh yeah, this my my brain was sparked all over the place because of what was happening on the pitch. It's not. It's, it was probably more stimulated by being there with my friends on a cold day in the rain uh passing around a hip flask with some single malt in it which is very nice and nice and, 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 yes <laughs> yeah this this is more part of it i think I, and and yeah i i think that as far as a major club's concerned and when you've got something like when fc united of manchester was formed there was obviously something about it that when you when you look at the way that they that they have formed and they've grown there is something very much in the past about it they are very much uh what well the term is called against modern football and it's it's about the fact that they think that football has been overtaken but over commercialized and has been overtaken by business and and in many ways it's true it has been uh but it the, the in, in other ways, it's it's always been the case. But there is this hearkening back of a time when football was better. Uh, and I think it's probably, for most people, it, it's a, a time when they were young and when they first fell in love with their football club. And I think that's what the FC United of Manchester fans were looking at. They were looking at something that would remind them of something in the past that it isn't to do with football of today, but is that club then? Chapter three, stop trying to explain it, embrace it. It's interesting what Graham says about how people often focus on the past, to times that were in some way better, easier, or more enjoyable, without a true sense or tangible reason as to why that might be. He mentions what's going on in our psyche and how the emotions and feelings behind what sport means to them aren't necessarily something that can be explained. As writers, it's an important point, as it allows us to understand that characters can simply be obsessed with something purely because they're obsessed with it. It's not always about explaining the genesis of that obsession, but rather how it impacts that character's story. We can see the impact of sport on people and communities in the explosion of documentaries on streaming services. You need only watch the first few frames of Sunderland Till I Die to see what it means to people's lives as a local priest in church on a Sunday. Ask God to help the team do well. That's why it's been used a lot by TV companies and media companies. The fact that a Sky Sports subscription costs many times what a what a Netflix subscription will cost shows mm. how important it is. Uh, and how you can get people wrapped up in it. People will pay £40 a month for just having the sport. And and so the, the fact that, that Netflix can go or uh, or Amazon can, can go and follow a team around for a year, like the, the All or Nothing series with uh, which have right. got uh, Manchester yeah. City. Uh, I think Tottenham are, are doing it as well at the moment. Uh, those sort of things are, are are being lapped up because it's stuff that that people want to see, and people want to see the the inner passion. They want to see that it's not there. There is a, a narrative that that footballers these days don't care, and of course they care. They, they they are just like young blokes who like playing football. But it seems 
bizarre when they're on three hundred thousand pounds a week that that they that they would have anything in common with the people who scrimp and scrape to to try and get to see them. Which is why when you come across young players of clubs who have come up through the academy system, who have been on what you and I would have way back when you know called YTS contracts. They're now in the first team. They find themselves with all this money, but they are still from, you know, five miles down the road. Um, they are still in love with this particular club, the same boy they have always been. They just now have a huge amount of money. I think sometimes people miss the association, the affiliation that those very, very young men and indeed women have with the clubs that they grew up with they do, do you think we just look at these players as being incredibly rich people that that don't care and and is that fair it maybe it is maybe it's not i don't know i think it's part of the narrative that football doesn't care that's my personal opinion anyway i think that there is we, we've seen it a lot this season with uh with the introduction of of a system called var which it is which listeners may may know is basically using video refereeing. Uh, now, on the onset outset of that, then you, you can say, well, uh, that sounds like a good thing. You want to have right decisions being made, but it has changed the tempo of the game. It has made watching the game in the stadium entirely different. Watching on television, it, it's pretty much the same. You've, we're used to seeing re- television replays, uh, and usually nothing has, has ha- no, nothing happens about them. But when you're inside the ground, and then all of a sudden you're you're having a, an unnatural break because someone in a room that's not even in the ground is looking at what's happened on the pitch and is deciding whether or not a decision should go one way or the other. It seems to break the spell of, of of football for a moment and you you suddenly think well what's actually going on here i saw this with my own eyes let's play on let's let's carry on the the fluid nature is gone and and i think there is this whole thing about about play being removed every time something like this is introduced there there is a separation between the the person who turns up to a game and the game itself and I wouldn't want to come across and say, oh, this is a bad thing. I do personally think it's a bad thing. But it is it is change. And, and change is always seen as, as either good or bad, uh, rightly or wrongly. And, and I think that, that whenever you change something that you fell in love with, you either change with it or you see it in a different way. You either love it less it's- or you love it more. Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. And I think that the arts is going through something very similar, not just literally right now, but over the last um, few years, you know, the advent of technological advancements and the cheapness of technology has led to many more people being able to make their own content, whether it be short form, whether it be film, Um, the transition from physical film media, whether it be 8, 16, 35 um, mil film to digital media means that mistakes are less expensive than they were because you can just you know override the uh, the media and, and and go again people can record stuff on their devices we have the advent of things like national theater live we have people doing streaming stuff and yet we still crave after all that even though we embrace the fact that there is technology and democracy in terms of the production and consumption of content we still go and sit in a tunnel underneath waterloo station just to get that 
that fix. So maybe the arts and football are kind of exploring this narrative for uh, different stages. And, and does that mean there's a separation in the audience? It might do. So is what's the future for the audience of football? Will it always be huge stadia or will it move kind of online? Because at the moment, not only can we not watch football, there isn't any football. And if there were, would we still get 70,000 people in a big stadium watching it? You know, have, have you thought about that for the future of the sport? Yeah, I, that that is fascinating because I think if you... I don't know. I mean, do do you ever go to 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 stadium gigs anymore? I mean, I can't remember the last I, time I did. No, I haven't been in a very very long time. And when I did, yeah. it was with my wife to a a suede gig at the Brixton Academy maybe about ten years ago, and there wasn't a soul over the age of thirty five. So. <laughs> right, yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about massive, like like go to Wembley to watch for eight with eighty thousand people. I think probably one of the last times I I did something like that, I probably saw the Stones at, at, at Twickenham probably about fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah, I, I saw I saw I saw the Stones at Don Valley in ninety five. That's probably the last massive gig I ever went yeah. to. Yeah, and and so but. You're not going there for the quality of the music, are you? It, it is something different. You, you you go to these things just to uh, uh, I don't know, be part of of a big experience, I suppose. Uh, they put on a great show, but you, you're not going to sit there and think, oh wow, the, the music they're playing right now is, is so so such good good quality because you're you're sitting in a in a in an open air arena. You're you're actually there more for the experience rather than the quality of. Of or the audio quality, the show is something else that's completely different. But of course, if if you heard an acoustic set by them in a room with thirty or forty people on it, it might be that that would be life changing. That would that would be incredible, wouldn't it? You mean just the just the intimacy of that moment? Yeah, and I think I think there is there there is more than the than just the performance, isn't there? There 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 is what what the viewer brings with them and takes away with them as well. So it, it is, there is that level of, well, it, it is a two-way street, isn't it? And I think the same is true as football in, in football as well. Chapter four, gambling, board games and journalism. It's true to say that football and sport generally touches many parts of our lives. And one area which has a profound impact on us is gambling. It's fascinating that in a world where it's no longer acceptable for an alcohol brand or cigarette manufacturer to sponsor a football team, we still believe gambling to be fair game. But as with everything, it seems, this has also been hit by coronavirus. With no games to bet on, what will people who've become reliant on getting their fix do? There are football games going on. I mean, if you want to go and bet on a match in the Myanmar League, then you certainly can do. And this is what... what companies like bet365 offer they offer live streaming of games that ordinarily you would not care anything about uh, but yeah globally most sport is gone now and there must there must be a huge hole in a lot of people's lives because a lot of people just have to bet on something and i don't know what they would be betting i mean there are probably hideously dark things that you can bet on during a pandemic but i wouldn't even like to, to imagine those sort of things really but of course when you haven't got something like that to, to bet on then you can always fall back on the online casinos and of course what you can do is you can go and play poker and i'm sure there's there's suddenly going to be a another resurgence in online poker without football lackers to fill people's well to empty their wallets with 
And on that, in terms of, you know, and I know you mentioned you gave a digital example there, but is there a sense that we may return to a more analogue form of enjoyment of the narrative of football through things like either Sabutio or, you know, you, you said you were working with a bunch of, um, when you said gamers earlier, I, I assumed you meant computer gamers, yeah, but you were actually yeah. referring to, to board gamers. That's yeah. really interesting. No, exactly. It's part of the the, the sort of surge in, in um I suppose in in more sort of like you know, hipsterish areas of, of of major cities, these guys came from uh, Edinburgh, and you probably see it in the East End that there are board game cafes now, where where people sit down and play board games, and uh, which is quite cool. And these these guys were were in these these cafes, and he loves football. He comes from a sort of football manager game sort of background, and that that's one his favourite football game, uh, and he wanted to to recreate it. And uh, I, I think that's great. I mean, they, it, but it's so analog that it, it it is really designed for two people sat at the same table, which is great if you're if you're self isolating with with someone else. If you are self self isolating, then of course you you run into a problem. So that that sort of runs where 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 the analog uh, hits a hits a, a dead end. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, when I when when I was a kid and certainly when you were a kid, you know, you could go the whole day without knowing what the scores were. That was very, very easy to do because we didn't have, you know, the technology. We could last the whole day if you didn't see anyone, talk to anyone or answer the phone that was tied to the wall (laughs) at the end of the stairs. Right. Then you would never know, you know, what the scores were. You would simply wait until match of the day and you could do it. I don't know about you, but it takes me back to my childhood when there was not only any football that we could watch, there wasn't anything at all. We didn't have access to it outside of the season. Sky Sports didn't exist. You couldn't watch replays. You know, I had this one video, VHS video of, you know, the best of the Man City, Man United derby. And that was about it. But do you feel nostalgic for those times? Is it reminding you of that narrative at all about when we didn't have any football? Um, yeah, I must admit it, it does a little bit, and that coupled with going down to supermarkets and seeing the the the, the shelves hideously understocked really does take <laughs> me back to the nineteen seventies. <laughs> Um, so, so, so the next thing, the next thing, the television will go off in the afternoon, and pubs will be shutting. Well, they are shut. So there shut. you go. I think you're right. <laughs> Yeah, I must admit, like at uh, 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 three 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 thirty in the afternoon, thinking, "Oh, I could fancy a pint right now." Oh no, the pubs are shut. Oh God, the it's pubs like... are shut. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like the eighties again. I know, Graham. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts um, with us. What does the next few weeks um, hold for you in terms of the podcast? What kind of issues are you going to be exploring? Uh, well, I think what we're going to be doing next is we're going to hopefully be talking to some people who would ordinarily be working at the moment so I, I think what we're going to be doing is try to talk to some journalists and try and see uh, how they're coping with the with the this break in football um but also as well just just exploring our own experience i think of it and and looking in into how we're coping without it and and in fact what we think will happen when it returns because it's so up in the air at the moment no one knows what is going to happen it, it is in in many respects, I mean, it's a very very scary time, obviously. But as far as football fans are concerned, I think just we do we do get a lot of time at the moment. We have a lot of time on our hands, so I think it's fine to to think about 
things that you really enjoy and thing, things that you, you really enjoy in life include stuff like, like football. And so I think we'll, we'll be doing a lot of that. Well, I think we'll be looking at, at where it's going, what it could come back like. And I think, as you say, what does the future hold for it? And for me personally, that's actually quite an intriguing thing to think about. Yeah, it really is. Graeme Sibley, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you very much. A massive thank you then to Graeme Sibley for joining me on the podcast. To recap, what have we learned? Football can mean so much more to individuals and local communities than is evident on the surface. And at a time when matches are being cancelled all over the world, the absence of the game in people's lives highlights its importance to so many. As writers, we can draw on the obsession and passion of football fans by learning to sometimes look past why our characters feel a certain way and focus more on how the way they feel affects their story, journey and development. And more broadly, writers can use these examples to think about the extent to which a seemingly innocuous hobby, sport or lifestyle choice can so profoundly impact a person's behaviour. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really, really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.